What a precious promise. No more weeping. No more tears. No more death. Jesus has secured that through his own death and resurrection. We're taking some time away from our regular series in the book of Romans to look for a few weeks at the theme of Christmas comfort. Comfort is something I think everybody wants. Everyone wants to be comfortable, to be comforted. There are lots of comforts associated with the season. Christmas lights and Christmas foods and Christmas traditions and Christmas gatherings. All of these things bring a certain level of comfort to us. But in this series, we are not looking to the trappings of the season to bring us merely sentimental comfort or seasonal comfort but solid, sustaining comfort, true spiritual comfort, the comfort that comes from God's promise to us in the gospel. Gospel promises that have been secured by the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because the promises of God are secured by Jesus' life and ministry, That makes Jesus' birth not only essential, but it makes it profoundly wondrous. For the birth of Jesus is the truth that God has taken on flesh and become like us. Christmas is the truth that despite our sin and rebellion, God has come near us. Christmas is the truth that God is with us. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. That's where we're going to begin this morning. We're going to be in several different places in God's Word, but we'll start in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew's narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. Always good to remind ourselves of the story that we think we're so familiar with, but sometimes we forget certain parts or gloss over them. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, I'll read through verse 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for sending your Son into the world, that through his incarnation, perfect life, 
substitutionary death and victorious resurrection, we might be redeemed. Thank you, Jesus, for leaving the glories of heaven in the eternal presence of your Father and being made in the likeness of man, being born of a woman, taking on flesh and blood, becoming like us, identifying with us, coming to us, and being God with us, Emmanuel. Teach us, Lord, some of the wonder and the reality and the blessing and privilege of that. Show us your mercy, God, in sending your Son. Show us the perfections of Jesus Christ that we might rest in him for our eternal salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we consider the truth that Jesus is Emmanuel and the basis of our Christmas comfort this morning, I want us to trace four biblical scenes of God's nearness. Four biblical scenes of God's nearness. The term Emmanuel, which means God with us, communicates proximity, closeness, nearness. And not just the nearness of God, but it also implies that he is near in order to bless, in order to save, in order to forgive, in order to redeem and care for us. This title, Emmanuel, God with us, is not intended to strike terror in our hearts, which it might, given what we know about God, given what we know of who he is, that he is a holy God, that he is a jealous God, that he is a wrathful God against sin. But no, this term Emmanuel is in turn intended to comfort God's people. That God's nearness, his closeness, his proximity to us is intended to inspire in us gratitude and thanksgiving for he's drawn near to us in order to bless us and save us and grant us eternal life. Despite our sin that does indeed separate us from God, God has chosen to draw near to us in order to save us. But this isn't something new for God. This is what God has been doing from the very beginning. God has been drawing near to his sinful creatures since the very beginning. And that's where I want us to begin the first biblical scene of God's nearness takes us back to the Garden of Eden. God comes near in the Garden. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you may recall that God creates all things out of nothing. He speaks them into existence. And the last thing God created was human beings. Adam and Eve, our first parents. God created them, male and female, man and woman, in His image and according to His likeness. This means that God created humanity with certain qualities and characteristics that were like Him. 
certain qualities and characteristics that were like him and that distinguished humanity from the rest of creation. God created human beings in his image and according to his likeness in order that they would rule the earth under him. To be his vice regents in the world, caring for and exercising dominion over the world that he had made. All the while enjoying intimate fellowship with their creator. God gave Adam and Eve freedom to eat from every tree in the garden. Every tree but one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're in Genesis 3, just maybe turn the page to Genesis 2. We can see this command of the Lord, Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And then in Genesis 3 comes the sad truth, the tragic fall of mankind into sin and the terrible consequence of sin which is separation from God. Genesis 3.6, look with me there. Genesis 3.6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Well, that's it. That's where everything went wrong. That's why the world is so full of problems, so full of war, so full of death and disease. That's where it all went wrong. Well, Adam and Eve immediately start to hide from the Lord who had created them, from the Lord with whom they had enjoyed fellowship for so long. Genesis 3.8 says, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, what do we know about Genesis 3 here? Well, we know that God knew all about the sin of Adam and Eve. He wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't taken by surprise. We also know that he knew exactly where Adam and Eve were. The omniscient God, the om omnipresent God who knows all things. We cannot hide from him. His eyes see all at the same time. What we know is that despite their sin and rebellion against God, God came near. God came close. God came looking. God came calling. He came to Adam and Eve, not immediately with words of rebuke and judgment, but with a series of gracious questions. Like a loving father. But that is not all. God comes near not just to judge sin, though he certainly does judge sin, as we'll, you can read about in Genesis 3 there, of the curse that God speaks over creation and over humanity. 
But he also gives hope and he makes provision for our needs that sin has created. Look at Genesis 3.21. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is God coming near. This is the gracious God providing for what we need. Providing for us for what our sin has caused. Adam and Eve deserved to die immediately because of their sin. But instead of experiencing death themselves, God caused the first death to be the death of an animal to cover their shame and their nakedness. The death of an animal which would foreshadow the sacrificial system that was to come where a substitute was chosen to die in the place of the guilty to cover sin, guilt, and shame. Adam and Eve were covered through the death of another, a death brought about by their sin, but immediately caused by God himself, enacted by God himself to cover Adam and Eve. Their shame was covered through God's merciful provision. Covered because God came near. But greater than this temporal physical provision was God's great provision of a saving promise. Speaking to the serpent, Satan, God says in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the gospel, he says this, and I'm going to put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You're going to take a swipe at him. It'll be a glancing blow, but he is going to deliver a death blow to you, Satan. In the midst of man's sin and rebellion, God comes near and he speaks words of promise, words of hope, good news of gospel truth. He came near to promise and to provide. He came near to cover our shame and to give hope of a seed that will provide the final victory over Satan and over sin's curse. From the very beginning, God has shown himself to be a God who comes near. A God who, despite our sin and rebellion, pursues us, takes the initiative, seeks us out, draws near in grace and mercy, and provides for our every need. From the very beginning, God has proven himself to be a God who is with us. A second scene I want to take you to in the Bible is the tabernacle. So we have to fast forward several hundred years. God makes a covenant with Abraham and he repeats this covenant to Abraham's son, Isaac, and to Isaac's son, Jacob. The covenant God makes with Abraham is a unilateral, gracious promise to give Abraham a land, a seed, and a blessing. And that through Abraham, God would bless the nations. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would come to be known as Israel, the special people of God, whom God preserved from a great famine by taking them into Egypt. This preservation in the land of Egypt over many years turned into 
bondage, slavery, so that the people of God became the slaves of the Egyptians. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God delivered his people, led them out of slavery and back to the promised land. However, because of their continued disobedience and sin, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. The fulfillment of God's promise to bring them back to the promised land was delayed because of their sin and disobedience. And yet even in the midst of their continued rebellion that came right on the heels of this great deliverance, God graciously and mercifully came near to his people. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, God says this. He says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. God promises here that he is going to dwell among his people. He's going to make camp right in the middle of them and dwell among them. Exodus 25, 8. God says, let them construct a sanctuary for me, a house for me, that I may dwell among them, that I may live among them. Exodus 29, 45. God says, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and be their God. So over and over again, God promises to dwell among his people, to draw near to them, to live among them, to live side by side with them. So Moses constructed the temple in keeping with God's commandment and his very specific designs for the tabernacle. And once construction was complete, God came and dwelt among his people throughout their wilderness wanderings, those 40 years. When they finally arrived into the promised land, the tabernacle eventually became the temple. God pitched his tent among his people to dwell with them. And in Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38, we read this. You can turn there in your Bibles if you would. Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38. This is the moment that God came and dwelt among his people, tabernacled among them. Then the cloud, that is the cloud of God's presence, covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The presence of God filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from the, over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel were set, would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of the house of Israel. The 40 years of wandering in the desert were not Israel's high point, to be sure. In fact, it was one of the lower moments of Israel's history. It was a time marked by grumbling and complaining, marked by sin and rebellion. And yet, in the midst of all of this, God graciously and mercifully came near His people, just as He promised to do. Leviticus 26, 12, I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. God pitched a tent among His people, and He dwelt with them. 
In the desert, God tabernacled among his people. And that is the same word that is used in John's gospel, in his prologue, to describe the incarnation of the Son of God. Look with me at John 1, 14. John 1, 14 says, The Word, the eternal Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, pitched His tent among us. It's a a word very similar to the word used in Exodus and Leviticus. And we saw His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the tabernacle and in the temple later, God came near to dwell among His people, to live among them. That is because He is a God who is with us. A God who draws near to us. A third scene I want to take you to to show you the nearness of God is in the Psalms. God comes near in the Psalms. Look with me at Psalm 23. You might not even need to turn there. Maybe you've got it memorized. It's the most well-known psalm in this altar. Psalm 23. Let me read it for us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Who is the main actor in this psalm? It is the Lord. It is God. That's right. The Lord, the shepherd. He is the one doing the initiating. He is the one doing all the action. In verses 1 through 4, God is pictured as a caring shepherd, working closely, intimately with his sheep, leading them and feeding them and guiding them and accompanying them and protecting them and comforting them. It's his presence among them that comforts the sheep. In verses 5 through 6, God is pictured as a gracious host. The metaphor changes a bit. A gracious host who sets a lavish table and provides comfort and nourishment in the face of threats from the enemy. He's pictured as a God who is near to bless and to provide blessings that overflow. A God who is within arm's reach. Can you pass the salt? God, the gracious host, does so. A God who is faithful to His covenant promises and exercises loyal, faithful love. God comes near as a gracious, loving shepherd and God comes near as a gracious host in Psalm 23. Next, let's look at Psalm 46. Psalm 46. Pastor Rob preached on this psalm a few weeks ago. Psalm begins with your worst case scenario. 
and God being a refuge for you in those times. Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What kind of trouble? Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. We're talking about trouble on a seismic level. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. How is it that the Lord is our comfort and strength? How is it the Lord is our refuge in such times? The answer comes in verse 7. The Lord of hosts, the God of armies. The Lord of hosts is with us. Im Anu. He is with us. Im Anu, as Pastor Rob pointed out, that is, that is taken right from Emmanuel, God with us. He is with us. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And as if that wasn't enough, he repeats it in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. Imanu, Emmanuel, God with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Not just there, but Psalm 125. God is described as being near us in order to keep us, to help us, to protect us, to guard us and guide us. God is pictured as someone who is near to care and keep. Psalm 121 verse 5 says, The Lord is your keeper. Ha! I have a keeper. And it's the Lord. He keeps me. I need a keeper. I need someone helping me, guiding me, correcting me, keeping me. My keeper is the Lord. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. He's so close to you that He provides cover. He's a shade. In the extremes of living in a fallen world. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. He's right there. He's right next to you. Because He's near. He's a God who is near. He's a God who is with us. Well, the fourth and final picture I want you to see this morning is that God comes nearest to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He couldn't come nearer than by coming near us through his own son, Jesus. For this, turn to John's gospel again. That prologue. John 1, 14. John says, And the Word, again, the eternal Son of God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, no mistake for John using that word, dwelt tabernacled, pitched his tent among us, taking us right back to the wilderness wanderings. After 400 silent years, God is dwelling among his people again. After 400 years of slavery and bondage to Egypt, God is dwelling among his people again. Direct correspondence there. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying, 
God came down and lived among us. Demonstrated his glory before us so that we could see it with our own eyes. Glories as of the only begotten from God the Father. Glories just like the glory of God. Full of grace and truth. Now, though Jesus was made flesh, it doesn't mean that he was just like us. For he was God in the flesh. He is the God-man. He is not like us in that he was sinless. He was tempted at all points, even as we are, and yet without sin. But nevertheless, he was truly man, even as he was truly God. He perfectly imaged his Father, so that to see Jesus was to see the Father. And Jesus said that himself. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was full of grace and truth, as God is full of grace and truth. John goes on to state that Jesus is the pinnacle of God's nearness to man. The high watermark of God's nearness to man is the incarnation of the Son of God, of God coming to us, being near to us, and being with us by becoming one of us. John 1.16 he says, for of his fullness we've all received. And grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, like waves on an ocean that just, that just keep coming to shore without interruption and without end. Grace upon grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law which condemned, the law which found guilty, the law which judged, but grace has come through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth realized through Him. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The only Son of God who knows eternal intimacy with the Father he has explained him. He has exegeted him. He has exposited him. He's shown us who God is in a way that God has never revealed himself before. This is the high watermark of God's revelation to man, of God's mercy and grace to man, of God's coming near to man. Now, back to Matthew, where we started. Matthew 1. The angel reveals to Joseph that Mary will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save their people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through by the Lord through the prophet and he quotes from Isaiah 7 here. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. His name will be Jesus. The name Jesus is the Old Testament equivalent of Joshua, Yeshua. And it means the Lord is salvation. Jesus, for short. Jesus, Savior. Why will we be called Jesus? Because he's going to save 
his people from their sins. He's on a saving mission, a rescue mission. And how would God bring about this salvation? By drawing near to his sinful people, by drawing near to a rebellious humanity, by drawing near in the incarnation. Eternal Son of God becomes man, born in Bethlehem. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of that ancient prophecy of Isaiah, of one who was to come who would be, by his life, by his essence, and by his mission, God with us. Matthew's gospel and Jesus' earthly life and ministry both begins and ends with the promise that God will be with us. We see it here in Matthew 1.23 where Jesus is the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy. Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew's gospel ends and Jesus' earthly mission ends as he ascends to the right hand of the Father and he speaks these words in Matthew 28, 20. And lo, I am what? With you always, even to the end of the age. So Matthew's gospel begins and ends with I am with you. God with us. Emmanuel. This is who Jesus is. This is his essence. This is his nature. This is his mission. To be God with us. So here it is, this definitive moment when God came near in a manger in Bethlehem. And not only when he came near, but when he came the nearest. God came near. He came near not to judge and not to condemn but to save, to bless, and to redeem. This time, when God came near, He came not in a cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night, as great as that was. This time, when God came near, He came not to kill an animal and cover over our guilt and shame, as great as that was. But when God came nearest is when He came Himself as a man. Born of a woman, flesh and blood like us, humbling himself and becoming one of us and dying in our place. As Paul says in Philippians 2, the Son of God, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. Sent Him forth. Go and be with mankind. Sent Him forth, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Emmanuel, God, Come near. God with us. God redeeming us and adopting us for his own. 
John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. We all know and love that verse. It's the most well-known verse in all the Bible. But sometimes what is overlooked is the next verse, John 3, 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. God sends His Son to be Emmanuel, to be God with us, for the very specific purpose of redeeming mankind. That's the glory of Christmas. That's the wonder of Christmas. That's the comfort of Christmas. God with us to save. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to come back the second time. And that second time, He's not coming back to save. He's coming back to judge. But for now, God has allowed a time of repentance a time of confession of sin, a time of faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, and He offers that to you now. God has come near. He's come near for your good. He's come near for your blessing. He's come near that you might be saved through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. The next time God comes near, He'll come near to judge. He'll come near to condemn. But for now, God has come near us to bless, to forgive, to redeem. I love this quote from the English Puritan Matthew Henry. He says, By the light of nature, we see God as a God above us. By the light of the law, we see Him as a God against us. But by the light of the gospel, we see Him as Emmanuel. God with us. That's the glory of Christmas. That's the comfort of Christmas. In Jesus, God is with us to bless us. In Jesus, God is with us to save us. In Jesus, God is with us to forgive us. In Jesus, God is with us to redeem us. In Jesus, God is with us to guide us. In Jesus, God is with us to protect us. In Jesus, God is with us to lead us, and in Jesus, God is with us to bring us one day to our heavenly home. Amen? Have you recognized, confessed, and believed that Jesus is God with us to bless, save, redeem, and keep? If you haven't, trust in Jesus today. He is God's Son. He is the Savior of the world. He is God with us. Christian, remember what God has done for you. Despite your sin and rebellion, God has come near. He has drawn near, and He's drawn nearest to us in Jesus. He's drawn near to us to redeem us, to forgive us, and to save us. What a blessed truth that God has come near. In Jesus, God is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for being Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for being willing to do the will of your Father, to leave the glories of heaven, to enter into all the frailty and brokenness of this world and of the flesh. You willingly took all that on 
in obedience to your Father, in love for us, that we might be redeemed, saved, forgiven, adopted, and kept. Lord Jesus, you are a great Savior. That's what your name means. Because you are the Savior of the world. May we all look to you in faith and trust. In Christ's name, amen.